God bless you this afternoon, family. So glad to be here with you together on this Lord's Day. We are not just uh, with one another in the same room, but we are together in unity, uh, in our faith, in our hope, in our love, in our joy, in the peace that we have received and experienced through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen. And it is He that we are here to worship and proclaim today. And as we uh, prepare to sit under the preaching of God's Word, uh, my prayer for myself, for us all, that our hearts would be open, uh, we would be soft, that we would be receptive uh, to the Word of God today. I remind you that this marks the beginning of three weeks where we will be dealing with the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ. And this morning, our text is going to be Mark 15, verses 16 through 47. That's going to be our text today. It's going to be our text next week, and it's going to be our text the following week. And all three weeks, we're going to read all of it together. And uh, that's purposeful. It's pastoral. Uh, it's something that I want us together to rehearse, to remember, to not turn away from, but for this three weeks to look head on at the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll not be going verse by verse through all of those verses each week, but we'll be dealing with different aspects of the death the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus. Uh, but each of these weeks, I want us to read the whole thing together. Now, it is lengthy. And, uh, and so I am going to invite you to stand if you are able. Uh, if you need to stand for part of it and sit for part of it, that's fine. If you need to just sit, that's okay as well. Um, but I will invite you as you're able, out of respect for the Word of God, uh, to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. And I'll invite you to read out loud along with me, Mark 15, verses 16 through 47. So if you're able, I invite you to stand as we read God's Word together. Mark 15, verses 16 through 47. May God add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word today. Amen. Let's begin. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. 
decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. I think it's perhaps appropriate for us to just linger there for a moment. It's a lot to sort of take in. The implications of it are endless, it seems. And even though the whole thing has been building to this, 
it comes and is gone so quickly that it's almost startling. It can be a little bit confusing to piece the time signatures that the gospel writers put together. Sometimes it seems like there might be some contradiction there. There's some differences in Greek time-telling and Jewish time-telling that makes it a little bit different. Uh, basically, there are different watches that are applied to the day that represent different segments of hours. Sometimes it's not clear uh, when Mark, for example, says that it was the third hour, that it was basically the end of the third hour watch uh, that comes at that time, so that scholars and theologians believe that Jesus likely uh, was crucified and expired in the space of about three hours, which is not a long time. It's part of why Pilate is surprised uh, that Jesus is already dead when they come, when Joseph comes and is asking uh, for the body. And so it, there is so much writing on this, and it happens really so quickly. But in truth, in Mark's gospel and in all the other gospel narratives, again, remember, they are passion narratives that are focused on bringing us to the suffering and the crucifixion, the death and the burial of Jesus, we see that it has all come to this. Everything that we saw Jesus tell his disciples that would happen has happened. He was delivered over to the chief priests. The chief priest delivered him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles offered him up to death just like he said was going to happen. And not like anything else that they probably thought he meant. Think about how often Jesus spoke in parables. And yet in this, he was not speaking in parables at all, but was plainly telling them ahead of time the things that were about to take place. And so it's all come to this. The truths that we confess together each week in the creed, we believe that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. I don't know if you noticed the emphasis that Mark placed on Jesus being dead. I think it was uttered three times. Um, need not remind you of the literary device that that is in ancient culture. There was no underlining or capitalizing of letters or bolding or exclamation points, but if they wanted to emphasize something to the nth degree, they would repeat it three times. That Jesus did not merely swoon, that he did not uh, merely pass out, but he suffered and he died and then was buried in Joseph's tomb. Certainly Jesus' epithet is worthy of much more than he was crucified, dead, and buried. 
But the central tenets of our faith hang on these three words, crucified, dead, and buried. For although Jesus' crucifixion, death, and burial were not the end of His story, they were the vicarious means God supplied for our atonement. Without the cross, without His death, without His burial, we are lost. But because of them, we have been granted new life through faith in Him. And so we confess that Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried. Today, what I want to do, we could camp out right here and probably never leave for the rest of our lives, quite honestly. There, there is more here for us to mine uh, from the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus than we have time left in our lives uh, to really get all of it. And, uh, and so we're going to spend three weeks here, uh, and, and then we're going to spend the rest of our lives revisiting it together. Um, but I could not possibly in three weeks exhaust everything there is to know or to teach or to learn or to understand or to appreciate uh, about the cross and the death and the burial of Jesus. And so we're going to spend time looking at those three things today the crucifixion, the cross itself. Next week, his death. And the following week, his burial. Today, as we look at the cross, I want to look at the shame of the cross, the curse of the cross, and the centrality of the cross. And so we have a lot of Scripture to get through today, so I want to kind of share that with you ahead of time. That Those are sort of the three things that we're aiming at today. That is certainly not exhaustive, uh, but for today, those are the three things that we're going to be looking at. The shame of the cross, the curse of the cross, and the centrality of the cross. And so we begin with the shame. Notice that as uh, even as Pilate, as we already saw, confessed what? I find no guilt in this man. He verbally confesses his own belief in Jesus' innocence before all the people. It's John's Gospel that will highlight that he will say that before the people and then he will ascend, he will go up, to the judgment seat. And on the judgment seat, he will then proclaim the judgment of Jesus that he is to be crucified. Though innocent, Pilate unjustly condemns him to death. It's an open mockery. That, I mean, how, what, what, what would we do? Imagine you're sitting in a courtroom and the verdict comes back, not guilty. 
And then the judge sits in the judgment seat and declares the one that has just been said is innocent, not guilty, declares them guilty and condemns them to death. It's, it's, it's a, an absolute injustice. It's a mockery of the whole system. It's, it's all of that. And so as a result, it is what? It is shameful what has taken place. And there is shame that is placed on the one who is experiencing it, but it goes beyond that. It says that they called together the whole battalion of soldiers. And they strip Jesus of his clothes. And what do they do? They begin to make fun of him. They begin to mock him. And they clothe him in a, in a colored garment, which most people didn't have colored garments at all. Uh, purple was a sign of royalty. As we read the gospel narratives, it seems that maybe it wasn't a royal purple, but perhaps just a dyed scarlet uh, garment that was placed on him. So even that was a mockery. It was, it was a pantomime. They shoved the crown of thorns on his head, thorns that had needles so thick that they likely could penetrate his skull, and they begin to mock him. When it says that they pay homage to him, it was not true homage. It was not them recognizing his innocence. And in the, in spite of Pilate giving Jesus his rightful due, it was a complete and total mockery. Striking him, spitting on him. The rest of the gospel accounts should show us they're pulling out his beard, which was again a sign of of shame, a person who has had their beard literally plucked from their face is, is, is a way that in ancient cultures they would shame a person by ripping their beard from their face. Obviously, the beard was a sign of masculinity and authority and standing, maturity, and to have it ripped out was to mock all of those things. Then, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. Likely, the mocking did not cease as Jesus puts his own shoulder and back to his cross and begins to walk down what we refer to as the Via Della Rosa this path that would lead from the Temple Mount to Golgotha, the place of the school, the place of death. All along the way, mocking Him. Then, compelling a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. I mentioned to you last week that uh, Rufus himself specifically is mentioned in the Paul's letter to the Romans. And while it is very likely that Jesus did not have the wherewithal and capacity after all of this beating, and whipping and the torture that he had received at the hands of these wicked and evil men, 
it is also likely that even in having someone else carry his cross, that it's still a mockery. Remember, what were they calling him? The king of the Jews. Oh, we can't have the king of the Jews carrying a cross. Here, you man, you carry his cross. As they continued to mock and make fun of Jesus all the way to the place of death. The shame. All was done to shame. And it's interesting that the preacher in Hebrews picks up on this. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, this is after talking of all the, the saints of faith in the Old Testament that have gone before us. The preacher says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him, He says, who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But notice that the preacher in Hebrews doesn't say, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the pain. Most of our attention in these days when we think of the cross is focused on the pain that Jesus endured, humanly speaking. And there's much that can be said about that. There's a whole uh, science that can be studied concerning crucifixion and all that Jesus would have had to endure from a bodily standpoint, from a human pain threshold standpoint. The whipping and scourging that he, along with others who were crucified, endured was often done so that their death could be hurried up uh, through the loss of blood and the quick infections that can set in with that kind of open wounds that are left undressed and uncared for. Uh, Because if a person was merely nailed to a tree, uh, they could literally endure for days unless something was done to end that suffering quickly. And so because the Romans uh, had become so effective at crucifixion, because it was such a common thing that was being done for the worst of criminals, they figured out that if we rip them open a little bit, that we can speed this process up. And so much attention has been given to the pain that Jesus endured, and it's worth considering. But is it not interesting that the preacher in Hebrews does not say despising its pain? Despising in this sense means to pay it no mind or to disregard, but rather, he says, despising the shame. Now, shame is something that enters quickly into human history. We find it all the way back in the garden. We're first given a glimpse of it 
in terms of the lack of its presence. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, speaking of the creation of Eve from the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. This is when man will sing for the first time. When he sings, essentially, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, Scripture says, and they shall become one flesh. Of course, uh, speaking of the sexual union that is meant to exist between a husband and a wife. And verse 25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Were not ashamed. This is, of course, perhaps one of the greatest miracles of creation. That man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. To our own sensibilities, this seems beyond comprehension, does it not? There's not one of us, I would hope, uh, that would care to uh, walk out into the middle of society, uh, bearing it all for everyone else to see. Uh, I don't know about anybody else, but I was plagued with that common nightmare uh, when I was beginning my tenure at school. Uh, right before I was about to go to school for my first day of school, I had a dream that I was at school without any clothes on. Uh, that, it turns out, is not uncommon. Uh, some of our earliest nightmares occur when we're going to be entering into the foray of public social life for the first time on our own. For me, it was at school where you dream that you show up either completely starkers or in your underwear and run around trying to hide and find some way to find dignity again. Um, that was uh, something that was so good to wake up from and find was not reality. At some point, we become keenly aware that we have something to be ashamed of. Roman crucifixion, something that they learned and adopted and adapted from the Greeks, and depending upon how you look at it, rather perfected, was aimed at providing not only the most excruciating pain in retribution for crimes committed, but equally or even more so, it was aimed at utterly stripping the individual being punished of all dignity whatsoever. Its goal is not so much pain as it is humiliation. And to this end, its victims were stripped naked. I know that um, for us as Protestants, it sometimes can be seen as uh, sacrilegious to have a crucifix whereupon Jesus is uh, there depicted upon the cross. Um, several different reasons for that, but think about those uh, things that you have seen. And even in those, what do we find draped across 
uh, Christ's uh, body, but some kind of cloth. Why? Because even in remembering his death, we want to provide some semblance of dignity. But in reality, Jesus was stripped completely and utterly naked. On top of being scourged, on top of being escorted out of the city to pantomime and act out the excommunication that they were experiencing from society, make no mistake about that. The fact that it was happening outside of the city was not merely a practical uh, consideration. It was to show that the condemned were being cut off from mankind. This is something that is not merely a Roman or ancient or even Greek. We find even in uh, the Old Testament, God commanding for different crimes for the people to be put out from among the people. On top of the taunting and mocking and the beating helpless, all was to show that the victims of Rome's cross had not just been captured, but conquered. And then to cap it all, they were brought to that basest and last vestige of any dignity, and all covering was torn and stripped away to submit them to open shame and ridicule, as well as expose them completely to the elements, the heat of the day and the cold of the night, with no recourse or ability to do anything at all to try and provide even the smallest modicum of modesty or propriety. And so in the cross, Jesus does not merely endure pain, but the suffering that he endures goes beyond the human threshold of pain as he takes on open shame and humiliation. And so Christ was divested of all human dignity. He was stripped naked to add insult to injury, to humiliate him. But remember this, even as I said a couple weeks ago, he was not going to be humiliated. He was going to submit himself to humiliation. And even this was for our sake. The problem is is that we have become so dull to the shame of our own sin because we do not consider it to be as bad as it really is. We live so close to it that we lose sight of how disgusting, deplorable, and grotesque it really is. How disgusting? How deplorable? How grotesque? So disgusting, deplorable, and grotesque that our sin even the slightest sin, is worthy of the open suffering and shame of the cross that Christ endured for us. Which means what? That it it wasn't an overreaction. The cross of Jesus was not an overreaction. God didn't overdo it by allowing Jesus to endure Not only the pain, but also the shame of the suffering of the cross. 
It is no mistake then to consider that one of the blessings of Christ's work for us and in our place is that instead of being stripped naked and put forth to open shame, though we deserve it and more, instead the blessing of Christ's work for us and in our place is that we will, by God, be clothed with robes of righteousness. For we have not been able to clothe ourselves except in filth. For even our best attempts to live righteous, holy lives apart from Christ's own atoning and vicarious work for us and in our place, those works by themselves only amount to, as Isaiah would call them, filthy rags. Isaiah 64, verse 6, We have all become like one who is unclean, the prophet says, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Which means what? They amount to nothing. There's no weight in them. Uh, This idea idea of weight is associated with glory in Scripture, the kabod, the weight, and all the things that we try to do to justify ourselves or earn right standing with God. Not only are they in and of themselves absolutely, completely devoid of any value, There is no weight in them at all, no glory in them at all that the wind could come and just blow them away like chaff. But those who put their trust in Christ, and even as He despised the shame of the cross, we despise, which means what? Disregard, pay no mind to the shame of being associated with the crucified Lord. Remember, that was part of the scandal of the early church as pagans would, would, would be completely astounded that there would be people that would openly, willingly, proudly associate themselves with a God who had been crucified. So that one of the earliest depictions of the mockery of Christians is a piece of graffiti with a donkey being crucified. And a phrase that basically says, so-and-so, who is obviously a Christian, believes in basically this jackass of a god. That there was so much shame in being crucified. That that's the association that people would make with that. But for those who put their trust in Christ and despise the shame of being associated with the crucified Lord, we will have a new song to sing. Again, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61 verse 10, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. Listen, for He has clothed me. He has clothed me 
with the garments of salvation. He has covered me, it says, with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Though we deserved to be submitted to the open shame that Jesus endured, instead, Jesus took our shame, and we don't get shame, we get clothed. We aren't stripped naked for the world to see, for God to point His finger and say, see, there they are in all of their shame. There they are instead, even as Scripture tells us that love covers a multitude of sin, even as we are shown the bad example of Noah's son as he went out and said, hey, look at our father who's naked and made a fool of himself. He's put himself to open shame. But the other two brothers walk backwards and cover the shame and the nakedness of their father. God Himself, though we deserve to be put to shame. He comes and in Christ, what does He does? Christ is stripped naked so that we might be covered in His righteousness. Covered, it says, clothed with garments of salvation and covered with the robe of righteousness. And it's not just any robe. It's not just a common robe. It says as a priest is decked out, as a bride adorns herself. It is the most costly and the most beautiful garment that anyone will ever wear. The garments of salvation, the robes of righteousness that were earned and bought and purchased for us by Christ our Savior who submitted Himself to open shame that we deserved. He took it on Himself. For even as it says at the beginning of Isaiah's prophecies in Isaiah 1 verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Jesus takes our shame upon Himself. He allows Himself to be stripped naked before the whole world. Though He was innocent, though He had done nothing wrong, more than that, He was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. Despising the shame, paying it no regard. What did Hebrews say? But for the joy that was set before Him. What was that joy? It was obedience to His Father and it was the redemption of His people. But there was not only the open shame of crucifixion and everything that Christ endured physically, there was also the spiritual element of the curse that Christ took on by being hung on a tree. And so we turn our attention to the curse of the cross. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, Paul, as well as Peter, as well as in Luke, in the Acts of the Apostles, all speak of this curse from the Old Testament that will be referred to here. Paul speaking of works of the law. Again, this is, what did Isaiah call them? Filthy rags. All of our righteousness, what was that righteousness? The keeping of God's holy and righteous moral law. He says, us doing that on our own, filthy rags. 
Original translation, minstrel rags. That's why in the ESV it calls it a polluted garment. Here, speaking of works of the law, the Apostle Paul, Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. If, if you're going to go out and you're going to say, listen, I, Jesus, what he did, I, I, even, even in a, a false sense of piety to say, I can't allow someone else to pay the penalty for my sin. I need to do it for me. Some people have taken that kind of arrogant, false sense of piety. I'm going to, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to, I'm going to seek to be righteous, to do good for me so that I can earn it. Beloved, you cannot earn it. As Paul says here, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. In other words, if you are not able to keep every single law, hear me, in perfection and in perpetuity. That means from conception to death. Keeping every law. Not just in the letter of the law, but also in the spirit of the law. Which means what? It's not a situation of you going, I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm standing up. That doesn't count. It doesn't count if you don't murder the person, if you still want to murder them in your heart. It doesn't count if you don't have adultery with that person, but you still want to in your heart. It doesn't count in terms of righteousness before God. Now hear me, better not to actually murder the person that you want to murder in your house. Don't go, well, I already thought it in my heart. I may as well go to say, no, it's not the same thing. It's the same sin, but it's not the same thing. There is a difference. The whole point of Jesus saying that in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount is to get you to the place where you finally understand, I cannot do it. I am incapable of keeping the law in perfection. But Paul says, you want, you want to try? Go for it, he says. Try. But if you can't keep all of it, then you're cursed by all of it. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, what does Scripture say? The righteous shall not live by law, but live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming, excuse me, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise spirit through faith. See, Jesus wasn't merely having to go and endure pain. He wasn't merely having to go and endure our suffering. 
But because we were under a curse, because we had broken God's law, He became a curse for us. This is why He couldn't just be stoned or shot by an arrow or had His head chopped off. He had to become a curse for us. Deuteronomy 21, 22-23. God says, A man who is hanged on a tree is cursed by him. And due to the curse... God says, you are not to leave him all night as it is a defilement of the land. Peter points back to Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. Paul points back to Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. Luke points back to Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. All of them to this obscure thing in God's law. Where he says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. I ask you, what had Jesus done to deserve the curse of God? Absolutely nothing. He was completely and totally innocent and perfect. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as that Lamb, He was submitting Himself to this cursed death for us and in our place. 1 Peter 2, 22-25, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. Speaking of Jesus, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him, to God, who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, Peter quoting, Isaiah says, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Oh, it is my prayer, beloved, that you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls and are not persisting in straying like sheep. You may ask yourself, wait a minute, didn't you just call Jesus the Lamb? Can Jesus be the Lamb and the Shepherd? That's exactly what He can be. Romans, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 7. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and where have they come from? What white robes are those? The robes of righteousness that the prophet Isaiah speaks of. I said to him, this is John speaking, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Listen, verse 17. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So, 
Jesus has taken our shame and he has become a curse for us. And this is the centrality of the cross. This is the central message of the church. Because without the cross, without its shame, without its curse, we have no forgiveness to claim. We have no healing. We continue in shame and bear the curse of our sins. But because Jesus endured the cross for us, all is lifted from our shoulders because it was placed on Him on that day. Because particular blood was spilled by a particular man on a particular cross, on a particular day, on a particular hill for a particular people. That hill is our redemption hill. And even when Paul writes to the Corinthians, this is how central the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus is for the church. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received. It's something they had already welcomed. This good news about Jesus, they had already welcomed it in their hearts. He says, in which you stand, which means their day-to-day life was being lived in response to this news about Jesus. He says, and by which you are being saved. By which you are being saved. Which means what? That there is this present and ongoing work of salvation that God is bringing to His people through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's not just something we thought about once upon a time, assented to it mentally, ticket stamped, don't need that anymore, and we go on about our lives, but rather the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus Christ for me and in my place is something that is meant to be a present and ongoing work that is saving me on a daily basis. Yes, once and for all, saved, redeemed, regenerated by the Spirit through the person and work of Christ, but yet on a daily basis, it is something that I keep coming back to and am needing Christ's salvation for me on an ongoing, in an ongoing way. Why? Because I'm still living this life in the flesh. And as long as I live this life in the flesh, though the penalty of sin has been removed from me by Christ's vicarious work, though the power of sin is being lessened over me by the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification on a daily basis, as long as I am in the flesh, the presence of sin still remains. And there is a war that is going on inside of me that the, between the Spirit and the flesh. And in order, you and I are not meant to win that war against the flesh by ourselves. 
We still need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We still need the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Not just once upon a time when we first believed, but daily in our lives as we seek to walk this life with Christ. And so he says, by which this good news, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, he says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He's, and everyone's like, okay, Paul, get there. What, what is this good news? What is this thing you preach? What is this thing they received and are standing in and are being saved by? What does he say? For I delivered to you as of what? As of first importance. What I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. You see, beloved, the cross was always the plan. It was always the plan. The cross wasn't plan B. Eve didn't take the fruit. And God didn't say, oh, myself, what are we to do? The cross was already the plan. The tree of life that was in the garden was not the antitype. It was the type. The tree of life in the garden was not the goal itself. It was pointing forward to Jesus who hanging on a tree would become the fruit of the tree of life for us. The cross was always the plan. The foreshadowing is there. In the Old Testament, Jesus speaks of it to Nicodemus. Do you remember this? In John chapter 3, where does... Jesus point Nicodemus to in the Old Testament. Jesus tells him that he has to be born again. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 verse 4 says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? But he does anyways. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. It's a reference to Daniel chapter 7. And as Moses lifted up the serpent, here it is. Jesus points back to the Old Testament. And he points back to this moment when the children of Israel had been murmuring against God. And God sends a serpent into their midst that bites them. 
and is beginning to kill them. They're dying. Some are dead. Others are dying. And what happens? God could have done anything. He could have just said, okay, that's enough. And it would have been enough. And it would have all been over. But instead, God gives Israel an object lesson. And He has Moses go and take and fashion a snake and hang it on a pole. And He sends out a message. What is this message? It's good news. Why is it good news? Because you are dying and here's the cure. If you'll believe the message that is coming to you, all you have to do is turn and look at the serpent that's been lifted up on the pole. And if you will, you will be healed. Imagine having the venom from a snake coursing through your body. Uh, some of you don't have to imagine. I know you've seen the YouTube videos where people actually allow themselves to be bit by these things just to figure out what's going on. There's something wrong with those people. And thankfully, John is going to preach about it in a few weeks and we'll all know better. <laughs> um, but uh, not to. Anyways, yeah, that's going to happen. <laughs> If you've ever seen it, there's almost nothing else that you can think about except the venom that is coursing through your veins. And here a simple message comes. If you will just turn and look to the snake that's been lifted up on the pole, you will be healed. Can you imagine getting that message? What do you mean? What do you mean if I just turn and look at the snake? Do you understand I've been bit? I need this venom to come out. I need someone to help me. I need medicine. I need a cure. I need a doctor. You're telling me if I just turn and look at the snake that I'll be healed. And yet the witness of Scripture is this, that everyone that turned, that heard the message of good news, that if they would just turn and look at the snake that had been lifted up, that they were healed. And all those that didn't died. It's interesting because the thing that is lifted up for them is an image of what actually hurt them, what bit them. That's what they need to turn and look at. Jesus says to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. He goes on to say, we know it so well, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Those who died on that day in the Old Testament, who didn't turn and look at the snake, were already condemned because the venom was already coursing through their veins. 
is it no mistake then that Paul will, in his letter to the Corinthians, speak of Christ as the one who knew no sin, but became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, what? The very thing that bit us, sin, Jesus took on himself. Scripture says he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And what happened? He was lifted up on the tree. And though we were not there on that day, with the eyes of faith given to us by the Holy Spirit, the message has gone out. All who will turn and look to Christ on His cross of shame and cursedness for them and in their place, they will be saved. Just like those who turned and looked at the snake. Because the, it wasn't about the snake. The snake was about Jesus. The snake was about the cross. So much so is this cross central to us that when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he said, and when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and of wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's how central the message of the cross is. That it really is what we need every single day. Every single time that we come together, why do we partake in communion? To proclaim His death until He comes. Why? Because in His death, Christ not only endured pain, but He took on our shame. He took on our curse. He paid the penalty for the sin that we have committed the penalty that we deserve, He took on Himself. And by doing so, He paid the price for all who will look to Him in faith to be saved, to be redeemed, to be freed, to be covered, to be clothed in righteousness and salvation. Because the works of Christ can never be removed or blown away like chaff in the wind because they are filled with the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for this message of the cross, of its shame and of its curse, which was ours to bear. And yet, like Simon, who came and carried your physical cross, Jesus, you bore our cross. You took on our shame and our curse so that we might receive the blessing that it is to be God's redeemed children, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, I pray that our hearts today would not be hardened, but rather be softened. And that God, by your Holy Spirit, you would even give the gift of faith 
for anyone here who is yet wandering, straying like a sheep. That God, today could be their day of salvation as they forsake their own works and look to the cross of Christ to see Him crucified for them and in their place there, taking on their shame and curse so that they might be clothed in salvation and righteousness from Jesus. You alone can do this work, O God, and we trust you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.